To me, empathetic leadership means having genuine care of your people and a willingness to do the right thing for them. And the right thing doesn't necessarily mean constant praise or always saying yes. I would actually say the opposite is true. The right thing is more likely to mean having really tough performance conversations or very directly and transparently challenging teams on quality of their work or their plans. And so I think that nuance for me with empathetic leadership is that you build trust with teams and your intent with those people on teams so that they know that you're driving them really hard for the right reasons and understanding that your intent is to make them better. Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald and your host on The Card Podcast. I'm curious about what's changing in the world of work. The conversations we have with our guests always bring in personal stories and unique perspectives for us all to learn from. Hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined by our guest today, Emer McGindley. And Emer is Worldwide Customer Service Director of Global Programs and Global Outsourcing with Amazon. She has 20 years senior leadership experience in global multilingual award-winning customer service operations. And in her current role, she oversees 10 functions. Some of those most interesting are global vendor outsourcing management for Amazon handling over 4 million contacts annually across over 140 sites located around the world. She has responsibility for internal communications for a network of 45,000 people leadership development of 56,000 leaders, and also looks after risk, regulatory, and compliance in Amazon customer service process improvement function, which delivers savings of $300 million annually. So if anybody knows anything about leadership, she has a fantastic view with 56,000 leaders to look after from where she's sitting. Emer is also, I would describe her as the Donegal Dynamo. She's a proud Donegal woman. You're very welcome to the podcast, Emer. And before we get to our topic today, I always want to know about people and their influences and their values and what shaped who they are today. So maybe bring us on that journey, Emer. Sure. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure to spend some time in your company. I'll steal the Donegal Dynamo. So yes, proud Donegal woman. I grew up in a, a little town called Milford, which is relatively small town outside Letterkenny. So I guess the first kind of thing is I grew up with a very strong sense of community. And that was very strengthened then from a childhood playing a lot of sport in the community, which definitely I think is the thing that unleashed a really huge sense of competitiveness in me and always wanting to achieve the best. And perhaps the nuance maybe is not necessarily to always win or to be the best, but to be the best that I can be, which I think is a very healthy way of thinking about things that my parents instilled in me from a, a very young age. Both my parents were teachers in the two secondary schools at home. So although it's a relatively small town, it's a large sort of gateway area. There's a big catchment beyond it. It's not lost on me now that I've ended up settling in a small town in Tipperary in Newport, which very much mirrors that style of town. And so one way or the other, one of them was going to end up teaching me. And so that for me, and actually for both of my siblings as well, was my mom. And in fact, she taught me for the first three years of school. And then she was actually my vice principal for my final years. And so, you know, I often hear people talk about their most embarrassing moment at school being when they called a teacher mom or dad. And let me tell you, it's a hell of a lot more embarrassing when they're actually your mom and you call them mom at school. <laughs> so, you know, again, joking aside, well, I certainly didn't appreciate it at the time. I can see now that that experience was pretty formative for me. So I think firstly, you know, I had my first 
immediate role model of a woman in a leadership position. And so that gave me a very clear view of, I guess, what hard work, passion for what you do and what a successful career looks like. And then maybe again, this nuanced uh, thing that it gave me was a weird ability to completely separate relationships, both inside and outside of work. And I think somewhere along the way that instilled this value that just because someone is in a position of power, it doesn't mean it has to be this autocratic dynamic. It can be a, a genuine human connection with clear guardrails that you play different roles or you do different jobs. And then on the other side, uh, I had influence from my dad in a, a different way. He was very much the champion of my sporting escapades. And beyond that, I think he was a very deep thinker and a, a very reflective man. And um, he was an English teacher, although ironically came from the Donegal Gaeltacht. And he had this really deep passion for literature and for words. And again, in, in reflection now, I can see how that formed my own ability in writing and interest in the importance of words. And that's a skill which has become very impactful, especially in my time in Amazon. And again, I can't say that I fully share his deep love of literature. I think this obsession with you know, seeking deeper meaning in things, certainly in part, maybe it can be attributed to that focus and skill of interpreting deeper meaning in literature. So all in all, I had a very, very, very privileged and a very happy childhood for which I'm very grateful. Yeah, it sounds like you were set up well. And uh, I had Mauro Procini on from Pepsi recently, and uh, he's the chief design officer there. And again, he talks about his uh, parents or his dad's love of words. So it's, it's amazing how we get these themes emerging in our conversations. So then you went into the big bad world and grew up in Telefonica 02. And how did you progress your career there as a woman? and growing up and breaking the glass ceiling and creating your own identity as you went through the organization? Yeah, I guess briefly before O2, I sort of moved to Limerick accidentally. So out of college, my first corporate or office job was in Letterkenny. And after a few months in that role, I was given a very small leadership role with a few people reporting into me. And within a matter of months, the company went bust. And so at the ripe age of, I think I was 21, my first induction by fire to leadership was making both myself and a bunch of other people redundant, which is unfortunately a task I've had to do a few times in my career. And so I was at a loose end and I came to Limerick to visit a friend that I lived with in college. And 20 years later, I still haven't gone home and I'm still here. And I stayed because I ended up taking a job in GE. And so again, I did an entry level in Shannon and Got really interested in Six Sigma and I spent about two and a half years there and left there as a master black belt. And that's when I then found my way into O2 as uh, originally as a team leader. So I spent seven, maybe closer to eight, very, very happy years in O2. And to your point, it's certainly where my formative years of growing up as a leader happened. And I was very, very lucky. I got a bunch of very varied and different opportunities and experience from running operations, to setting up quality functions, social media function, a PMO, sales function, and then finally being involved in a strategic program on digitization and the customer experience. And as you well know, John, O2 was very invested in leadership development. If I'm not mistaken, we were one of your very first clients when you formed Harmonics, right? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. One of our top first three. There you go. And I mean, I, I very vividly remember that experience and I'm very grateful for that investment because it was really my formative years as a leader kind of going through that growth spurt. And so some of the mental models and the leadership skills that I built at that time have very much stuck with me. And so I had a lot of formative and crucible moments, you know, too. 
I think a definite standout to me, to your point on kind of finding my identity and growing as a, a female in leadership was the fact that our CEO was Tuna de Grey. We had a woman at the helm. And, you know, so I think having that female role model to look up to and emulate was invaluable for that stage of my career. And I often think that Danuta is still the type of leader that I want to be when I grow up, whatever that is. You know, she had this, she had this amazing balance of qualities of being really no nonsense and really direct while being very relatable and vulnerable and humorous and again to the topic today very empathetic so a lot of crucible moments huge degrees of growth again i look back very very happily and with a lot of gratitude in my time in o2 so two fantastic role models so far a female role models and then we move on to amazon and a world that's i'm sure global very different again. You're working in in an organization that has disrupted many, many businesses. It's uh, feared by many in relation to, you know, they now own a lot of platforms for how we communicate and uh, and trade in business. So how was that experience? Uh, terrifying and completely overwhelming. But again, just such a fun ride. It was the biggest scaling challenge that I've had. You know, again, I'd grown up in the Irish industry, you know, leading people in an Irish culture. So it was this first experience of leading people in other cultures and realizing that, hey, that you can't just be a one size fits all leader. Different cultures require different styles of leadership. And, you know, just the sheer velocity, you know, you walk into somewhere like Amazon and you see numbers and they seem like monopoly money. You know, it doesn't seem real. The scale just doesn't seem real. So again, just these huge scaling challenges. I think the other big formative point was getting to do a lot of building. We were growing enormously at the time. So, you know, when I joined, I think I'm correct to say we had four marketplaces. So we had the existing big.com marketplace. We had the UK marketplace, which was relatively new. Uh, we had Japan and we had Germany. And so what year was that again, Amer, that you joined? That was 2011. And so, uh, we were, again, we were going through this explosion of growth. So, you know, I found myself doing things that, A, were not in my job spec, and but were just these huge crucible moments. You know, I was shipped off to Edinburgh and said, hey, go launch a site. Go work, figure it out with Scottish Enterprise, get us grants, find a building, kit it out, find people, hire an entire staff, kit it out, go. I was entirely underqualified for that task. But, you know, you sort of figure it out. And again, there's a, a huge support system and so on that, that surrounds the ecosystem. But there was a lot of big formative moments like that where you're getting to really build versus maintain or iteratively grow. And so that kind of unleashed this huge passion I have, I guess, for building and for innovating. And, you know, there's nothing more exciting than just taking a blank piece of paper and saying, go build something great. You sound like an entrepreneur within an organization, the way you describe yourself there. I think a lot of people would in Amazon because we are often building from scratch. And so there is, you know, it's definitely, I sometimes describe Amazon as, uh, you know, a small startup family business that doesn't realize it's now one of the biggest companies in the world. And there is very much that kind of founder's mentality and scrappy, let's launch, let's iterate, let's fail, let's learn. So it's definitely a very entrepreneurial spirit to your point. And then you're working for Jeff Bezos, uh, a different leader, a male, in comparison to a female leader. So how do you find your way there? Yeah, I mean, obviously, he's an incredibly smart man who has disrupted the world. I can't say that in my role, sitting in Cork in Ireland, that I was directly working with Bezos a lot. So 
<laughs> I think what I respect most is the culture that he has built. He's built a very, very unique culture. And a lot of companies describe and think and talk about customer centricity or customer obsession. And, you know, they're beautiful words that are embossed on a glass door or appear in posters. The thing that I think has kept me in Amazon for 12 years now is really the core of the leadership principles, which is the culture that he created, which really is this no nonsense, let's get things done. We do things for the good of our customers and our people, not for shareholder value. We're willing to fail. We're willing to be misunderstood. And a lot of the leadership principles are easily searchable. They just resonate very much so, again, maybe to the point of my formative years and how I like to think about work and how I like to, to think about getting things done. They just resonated so strongly with me that it was just sort of a perfect natural match. So that unique culture that he sought to create and don't worry about what anybody else thinks, let's do it, let's be scrappy, let's get into stuff, let's test, let's iterate. What kind of people does that attract then? And what behaviours does that drive? Well, again, definitely to the point it drives or attracts an entrepreneurial spirit. I think there's a saying in Amazon of Amazon is the place where high performers come to feel bad about themselves. So there's a very, very strong high performance bar it's a very performance-oriented type dynamic and culture. You know, I think the nuances, maybe the best way to answer your question is what I've found to be very different versus other organizations. And the first is sort of a culture of dissent. So we have this notion that it's our role as leaders to vocally disagree on things. So it's very much not a command and control type environment. Everybody's role and responsibility to heavily disagree. That's a skill that Definitely, I had to unlearn some previous behaviors and unlearn maybe some norms that had been built into me around how to think about hierarchy and so on and so forth. So that's probably the biggest thing. That and the genuine focus on working backwards from what the customer needs, not what will make us money. And this long-term belief, if you build an ecosystem and you're really working towards providing something that the customer needs, not something that we want to sell to them, but you fill a need that customers have, that over the course of time, the business flywheel will spin and you will get to profitability. But again, it requires that sort of long-term mindset because it doesn't happen overnight. And so, yeah, that's why it's sort of balanced with this notion then of very strong frugality that we have to invest in these long-term things for the flywheel to spin. And so day to day, we've got to be very sensible and frugal about how we run the operation. And when I look at lots of businesses who are in the traditional sectors, they're so scared of that change and really, you know, attach themselves onto the model and this is what we need to sell rather than doing that more diagnostic of what does the customer really need here and how can we watch out for that? So in that culture, our topic today is scaling with empathy. And why do you want to speak about scaling with empathy? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, I guess the direct answer to your question is because I think it's more needed than ever. And because I think to a large extent, it quite misunderstood and therefore quite undervalued. I think there's sort of this perception that being an empathetic leader means that you're soft and you're really nice and you live a work life that's rainbows and unicorns and butterflies throughout your time and you're wonderfully nice to everybody at all times. And it's none of those things. To me, empathetic leadership means having genuine care of your people and a willingness to do the right thing for them. And the right thing doesn't necessarily mean constant praise or always saying yes. I would actually say the opposite is true. The right thing is more likely to mean having really tough performance conversations 
or very directly and transparently challenging teams on quality of their work or their plans. And so I think that nuance for me with empathetic leadership is that you build trust with teams and your intent with those people on teams so that they know that you're driving them really hard for the right reasons and understanding that your intent is to make them better versus to berate them or you know be on some ego trip. And again, this isn't an Emer thing, by the way. So multiple studies have now categorized this as the most important leadership skill as we think about the future of work. And you know, this notion of work continues to change around us, right? We're no longer in a culture of jobs for life. And I believe very simply that people work for people. And you'll be interested in this. I heard a recent statistic from a study, an external study that was done, that your boss now has the same degree of impact on your mental health as your partner. Like, it's not just kind of mind-blowing to think that as leaders, we can have that degree of impact on someone's mental health. And so that really underscored for me this notion that we can only be successful as leaders of other humans if we genuinely care about that human as an individual, as a person, as someone who has a life way beyond the work that they do, and you know, someone who's more than a number, I guess said another way, nothing happens without our people. Work doesn't get done. No strategy or business plan, regardless of how grand it is or smart it is, nothing gets delivered without your people who actually do the work to make it happen. For my experience, and to your question on past leaders, I've worked with a lot of different leaders who've had very different styles, and unquestionably, the ones who've gotten the most impactful business outcomes out of me are the ones who genuinely gave a damn about me. You know, it's sort of that mindset, I think, as a leader of whether you view people as working for you or you work for them. And again, the leaders who cared about my ambition, me as a human, and therefore who had the trust and sort of the permission to push me like hell and challenge me really significantly, they're the leaders who got and continue to get the most out of me. So that intent that you talk about there and you're driving business and you're moving on, you know, that can be misconstrued, as you said, oh, that's Emer's thing now. She wants to, this is her ego. She wants to drive and maximize profit here or grow the market there or whatever. That psychological going in point of intent and anything you can share about how you get to know the person and hold the tension of, of driving for performance. Yeah, well, I see two big relevances of intent, and I'll come back to them. To the point on uh, getting to know the individual, I think it's a human desire to want to say, I want to know what makes this person tick. Because if I know what makes them tick, if I know what's going on in their life, I can probably get more out of them, right? And I don't mean that in a, you know, a cruel sense of I can draw as much as I can out of them. But, you know, very simply, if you don't know what someone's ambitions are, you may not be pointing them towards the right things to work on. So they might be doing the work that you want them to do, but they may not be doing the work that they want to do and therefore may not be as successful. So I think kind of at its basic level, it's, it's just a simple principle of caring about that individual and knowing what's going on in their life. Right. Like I think that's important as well so that you can help act as sort of a heat regulator for them. And um, but I think uh, to your question of intent, I sort of believe in a notion that if you're really clear and acting with positive intent, you can get away with almost anything. And again, I don't mean that in a shady or underhanded way. I mean, people aren't trying to interpret your behavior. You're explicitly saying, here's why I'm doing something. And so, you know, I think the first big relevance of intent is that when I think of conflict inside and outside of work, 
the biggest commonality that I see is that it's the lack of sharing of intent or misperceived intent that's causing the conflict. So a small anecdote, I was actually mediating a conflict recently and I asked someone in a one-to-one setting of like, hey, like, do you really think John wakes up every morning and thinks I can't wait to spend my day screwing you over? You know, do you really think that? And their answer was yes. <laughs> the relationship had fragmented to such an extent that there was this notion of perceived negative intent towards each other. And it's very, very rarely the case with conflict. It really is negative intent towards another human versus there being a disagreement in how something is done. And then I think secondly, the, the big thing is that intent allows you to build this notion of psychological safety. And I think that's the thing that allows you to be very direct, very tough. And I think that's especially true with feedback. So, you know, very simply, if I was walking in here to give you some really tough feedback that I knew you were going to take really, really defensively, might it be a different conversation if I started with something like, John, we've been friends for 20 years. I've known and respected your work for 20 years. I need to give you a couple of pieces of tough feedback. I know you're going to find it difficult to hear, but please know my intent in sharing it is so that you can be the best that you can be. And my assurance that when there's a tough message, you'll always hear it from me personally. Right? You're probably still bracing for impact of what's going to come out of your mouth next, but... (laughs) What's she going to say? I trust that it is with my best interest at heart. Exactly. I'm coming from a place of good intentions. Again, it's not an ego trip or anything else. Um, I think sounds very grand. It's just the simple premise of building a culture where criticism or failure or speaking up or taking risks or trying new things that they won't be punished or reprimanded. And you know, I'll tell you, and maybe some of your listeners will think this as well, I've had many debates with peers and other leaders about whether this notion of psychological safety is just snowflake mentality. And to quote, to think about it in a, a slightly different way, in, again, in my mind, it's the opposite. It's actually ground in fact and science. So firstly, as it relates to psychological safety, it is statistically proven that teams with good psychological safety innovate more and succeed more. And again, it's not just kind of logical, right? Like, so we know that invention requires an acceptance of failure. And if you're in a culture where failing in any way gets any punishment or berration, then why would you ever stick your head above the pulpit in case you fail? And therefore, will you invent? Probably not. And so to the challenge and the debate that I get on this, I would say, you know, what you want is a simple command and control, do exactly what I say, when I say it, as I say it, then sure, you probably don't need to care about psychological safety. But assuming that you do want risk-taking or invention and a culture that doesn't finger point or blame, you need psychological safety as a foundation. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. And you, I've heard you talk about the SCARF model and David Rock in the past. So maybe you might bring that to life for listeners around this space. Certainly. Uh, It's a fantastic book, a very worthwhile read. It's a book by David Rock, as you say, it's called Your Brain at Work. 
And this is a, a book and a model that's very deeply grounded into neuroscience and, and more specifically neural leadership. And really it's all about how the brain works at work, as the name suggests. And the basic premise of the SCARF model is that the brain is constantly seeking how to minimize danger and maximize reward. And so with it, he created this model and this notion that you can either put people into an away state, meaning a feeling of threat, or into a toward state, meaning a feeling of potential reward. And again, on the premise that, of course, you get significantly better business results when there's a potential for reward rather than perceived threat. So he talks about, as you say, the SCARF model. So it's an acronym. And so the breakdown of it is the first, the S, excuse me, is status. And that's very simply how we view ourselves relative to others. Uh, so again, you know, using you as my guinea pig, I think of it very simply as if I said, hey, John, I don't think you did a good job preparing me for this conversation today. I think it's going to be a terrible episode you're probably going to go into an away state, right? I'm criticizing you. And so naturally you're going to go to a threat response. And two things happen when we send people into a threat response. The first is that you enter fight or flight type mode and cortisol is triggered in your brain and stress is triggered in your brain. And so you're also now likely not listening to what's happening. You're just in fight or flight mode. And so the, this isn't to say that you can't criticize people though. So the notion here goes back to what we're just talking about, psychological safety. And at least being aware of the fact that you're going to trigger someone's status. And that can help you again with intent and uh, positioning so that it doesn't automatically attack their status. So, you know, if I said the same thing a little bit differently and said, hey, John, a little bit nervous about and unclear, you know, how, how's this going to work today? Could we use a couple of minutes at the start to go over how it will work so that we can make this a great episode? Again, hopefully I'm now not triggering cortisol, you're not perceiving it as a threat and so on and so forth. So I just, again, small anecdote, I had this uh, yesterday with a team presenting me uh, a paper and unfortunately they just totally missed the mark. And so I knew I was gonna have to spend the next hour really going at them and really, really criticizing the work. But before doing that, you know, before I went into my tirade, I just started with a basic principle of, thank you for the work. I want this team to be successful. This paper isn't going to help you be successful. So I'm going to spend the next hour criticizing this really deeply. But again, please know that I'm doing it with the intent so that you can pivot and be more successful when you actually go to pitch this idea. And also encouraging dissent, right? So if you don't understand my criticism or you don't agree with my criticism, challenge me. Let's have a conversation on it. And that unlocked a really great conversation because as I did go through some of my criticisms or feedback, one of the team piped up and said, hey, I don't get why you're sending us in that direction. And so that it enabled me to go, okay, they're missing an entire piece of context as to how this idea or this proposal is going to fit in the context of something else happening in the business. And so it sort of turned into a bigger coaching moment versus, you know, this big tirade of, of criticism. But you set it up for a coaching conversation by setting it out like that. When you boil it down, isn't most criticism coaching if it's delivered effectively? So true. And so, you know, just being mindful of status and how you criticize, that's sort of the first just basic premise of this model. Next element is this notion of certainty. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's any great nugget of wisdom that the brain craves certainty. And so I don't think there's any great detailed explanation on this. And of course, you know, especially coming out of the last couple of years, our ability to predict the future. There's very, very little certainty in the world right now. So again, as it relates to this model and how I think about leadership, for me at least what has been helpful is centering teams on, and myself by the way, on this notion of controlling the control, right? Like 
Sure, there is a global recession. There's war. There's unpolitical or there's unstable political foundations. There's cost of living crisis. There's all of these enormously impactful, uncertain things happening in the world. But is it likely that you or I can influence any of those on a day-to-day basis? And I don't mean that in an apathetic way, right? But like spinning on them and worrying about them versus controlling the thing that you can control, which is your performance and your attitude, I think it at least helps ground breaking that vicious cycle of how uncertainty can spin in your head. Because by the way, this is also the notion of uncertainty has now also been very strongly linked with anxiety. And so again, much to the, a lot of the teaching on anxiety, in my mind, it's this simple, I say simple, but it's not a simple thing to do, but it's a simple act of really looking at, well, what can I control on a day-to-day basis and how can I take control of those? And again, to the point of leadership, I think sometimes just acknowledging as a leader, hey, I know this is leaving you really uncertain. I know I'm leaving you in a really ambiguous state. And, you know, please trust as soon as I can make it less ambiguous, you will hear from me. I think, again, it just, it builds that trust. The next topic of it, so the A of the scarf is autonomy. And again, I don't think there's any great explanation needed on this. It's the brain's desire to be in control. And again, we've come out of a period where we lost a lot of autonomy. I think in the workplace, this shows up most in things like decision-making, And whether you're being explicit about the decision-making rights that you extend to your team on specific topics. So when I first came across this topic as a concept, I came to the realization that I was far too loose in communication in how I was thinking about decision-making. So again, we'll guinea pig with you, but it's very different if I say to you, John, let's schedule a brainstorm to figure out uh, which vendor we should go for tomorrow. Right out of that, who's making the decision? Is it me? Is it you? Or if I said, hey, John, this is your decision to make. Engage me if I can be helpful with input, but you don't need to consult me. That's, again, a very different message. And so a helpful question I asked a boss once when I was frustrated with my own autonomy is, what decisions don't I have autonomy over? Because normally it's a much smaller list than what you do have autonomy over. And so, again, I think it's really just seeking ways that you can be clear and explicit with the autonomy that you're extending to your teams, or again, acknowledging when you're taking away autonomy, right? Of, again, I know that you would like control over this decision, but for these reasons and this intent, I have to be the owner of this decision. And I recognize that you may not like that. You know, just recognize that people don't like them sometimes is in itself takes the sting out of it because you're acknowledging it. And just to that point then with the younger generation growing up, they want a lot more autonomy. They don't seek to work in global corporates anymore. They see the world of influencers and they, they want to do their own thing and have their own identity and autonomy. Are you seeing that, you know, playing out for you in Amazon? Yes, but probably not to a full extent yet. So I think they're going to be kind of breaking into leadership type roles in the next two to three years. So certainly, you know, we're at the stage now that we're doing active research on what does this mean? You know, I think this has probably happened with every generation. You know, every generation looked at the next generation and went, oh my God, you know, how are these idiots going to be successful in the workplace? And, and I think always more so a, a view or an assumption that, well, they're going to have to conform to us. And I think the difference with the next generation is that's not true any longer. They don't necessarily have to conform to this notion of, you know, a really bureaucratic corporate culture because they have options. They have different career paths that mean they don't have to choose that. They're not interested in jobs for life. They are interested more in the social and the moral compass of their company and their leadership. And so I think it's something that 
we have to pay attention to. We ha we have to figure out how to think about it differently. So, you know, for some of the teams that I lead, um, one of the teams I have is leadership development. And the next generation, you know, if you think about how we learn, we typically learn more synchronously, right? You know, you have an instructor that says, here's what we're going to go through, and we're going to go through this sequential. They're totally asynchronous. They jump in anywhere. They want to dip in and out of pieces of content. And so that's going to have to change how we think about delivering content. And again, another one of my teams is internal comms, and the same is true there, right? They're not going to watch a six-minute video. We might be lucky if they'll watch a 30-minute video or read an email that falls below the fold. So again, I think we've probably always all had this perception about the next generation coming, but I do think there's a difference this time. This generation have choices, and it is not they who will have to conform to the workplace or our notion of the workplace. I think we'll have to figure out how more so to integrate, and again, to unleash them and not consume. And it probably plays into the R and the F of relatedness and fairness in your SCARF model. They want to be treated as human beings. They want to have a voice rather than be told what to do. Exactly right. Definitely, I think it's a formative time in what leadership will look like and what developing people and leading people will look like, for sure. So our topic is scaling empathy. And we've talked about you having given a masterclass in, in describing how you go through the SCARF model and build that context for landing messages. How do you scale that then from your perspective? And you look after the leadership development of 56,000 people globally. So that's a multicultural issue. That's There's so many different dimensions to what I'm trying to ask <laughs> you to answer here. There's a saying that context is worth 10 IQ points. I actually think that's grossly undervalued. I think it's probably worth significantly more IQ points. And so I think, you know, if you think about context and intent together and scaling it, I think I've built high collaboration and high trust within teams. And again, to the notion of SCARF, built highly autonomous teams, and that creates really sharp, scalable decision makers. If I think about the times where I have been challenged in scaling, it's typically where I've been the bottleneck. And I haven't figured out how to scale my leadership to those who report to me or skip level to me and so on and so forth. And so I think this notion of sharing context, it really, you know, if, if I think about me doing, let's say, an all hands or something like that and sharing a bunch of context, that scales to then saying if there's a small project team working in a room that they can sit and say, well, hang on, we just heard about this broader context or we heard about this mental model that Ian was talking about that we need to think about things this way, then, you know, you start to breed some of that scale. So, you know, I think really by context, I simply mean helping leaders and teams understand the broader picture of the why and why something is happening, why it's being prioritized, why it's being executed in the way that it is. Uh, and again, I think context is also huge in extending, I think, a lot of credit to your team or credit that you receive from your team. So, you know, again, in a given circumstance, I will share whatever intent I can, whatever context I can, and that I know is appropriate to share at that time, depending on the topic. And so the teams also then know if I can't give clarity, if I can't give context, it'll come. So maybe just don't worry about it right now. It will come. And again, I think that it just sort of creates an atmosphere of trust and curiosity of like, help me understand what's going on elsewhere in the business. Again, you know, we work with very smart people, but if they're not equipped with context, they're automatically behind because it's worth so many IQ points. And it brings me to leadership practice because I was at a conference of, of our European partners last week in Germany and we were just talking about leaders having a leadership practice and seeing it like so. And many leaders, I guess, 
operate from the role that they have rather than really investing in their leadership as a practice. And I can get a sense from you that you deeply think about this stuff. You have the neuroscience and psychological models. It's just so important for leaders to think about this deeply rather than do the doing stuff, which an awful lot of people have been caught up into. And a sense of overwhelm and and obviously being squeezed as well because maybe they're under-resourced, they don't have the opportunity to, you know, delegate as much work as they might like, or maybe they're not able to and they don't have the skills to do that. So where do you see people's energy at the moment in the workplace with the pace of work and how they can bring more energy to their leadership practice? Totally. I mean, it's again, it's another one of these things that we just have to accept. It's a really real and significant business risk that we have at the moment is burnout. I think speaking broadly first, um, I think burnout has sort of evolved as a concept as well. So I think we think or certainly I have often thought of burnout and working hours as something interchangeable and that one automatically equates to the other. And I don't necessarily, I think the notion of burnout is evolving. So I don't necessarily think that's always the case. So if it is the case, right, so on a more practical point, if the issue is burnout on working hours, I think we have to play a stronger role and being a heavier hand in prioritization, right, and, and helping make difficult trade-off decisions. And I think, you know, one of the, the things that I've learned recently is, again, you know, like all of us, I've had to make some difficult calls on stopping pieces of work and others. And again, it's so simple, but it just hadn't struck me before that stopping pieces of work or issuing kind of trade-off decisions, they can feel like criticism to people. It can feel like failure to the people who worked on that thing. And so, again, back to context, back to intent, Uh, If you're sharing, look, we have to figure out how we get a little bit fitter. We have to make some tough decisions. These are the things that we've decided to stop doing. It's not criticism of the work that's been done. You know, it's an intentional business decision to value other pieces of work or, you know, try to move faster on some other areas. So again, I think when it's very functionally elements of work, we have to be leaders in helping with that prioritization. Kind of to your point, though, one of the other things that I've identified is that sometimes coaching in helping leaders scale is a big factor in burnout. And that's especially true for people who have been recently promoted or maybe taken on a new piece of scope, is they're still approaching maybe a broader scope with their existing way of working. And that might be a very deep sense of working and, you know, a very deep sense of reviewing intricate details and that doesn't scale. And so an element of helping leaders identify how they need to change their mechanisms to more go to inspect and guide versus, hey, do the work and review and sign off all of the work. And I've certainly seen that be a contribution to burnout. And then another point, and COVID has played a role in this, or if something is sort of changing in the macro environment, but I see so many people now juggling work demands in very different contexts. And one of the big notable differences that I've seen in my organization, for example, is the increase in people playing caregiver type roles. No, that's a whole job in itself. And so trying to manage a career on top, of course, is going to cause burnout. You know, we've got the highest recorded ever rates of anxiety and depression. So this is a really, really factor in burnout because, you know, I think we all know and have had times in our lives that if you're running close to empty, smallest thing can trigger you. Which maybe, you know, if you were in a a greater sense of fullness or wholeness, it may not have triggered you. But when your reserves are low and you don't have something to dig out a second gear, it's going to be much more impactful and it's much more likely to lead to burnout 
And maybe to your point of like, how am I thinking about it? One thing that I'm paying very close attention to is goal planning. And very particularly with top performers who are used to being top performers. So, you know, I think something that, again, at least for me, I have not paid enough attention to is being intentional with that exercise on an annual basis and really having a purposeful conversation about what the year looks like, right? So like life happens every year and every year you might be in a different situation with where you rank your career ambition in the context of your overall life. And so some years you might simply have more to give than others. And so a quick but impactful hack for me has been having this conversation with my team at the start of the process, which is asking them to think about what rating they want to achieve that year. And that requires psychological safety then for me to give the answer to Weimer if I'm asked that question. Yeah, totally. And, you know, what it has done is I've had a, a very recent example where, you know, someone who would have been typically and consistently, by the way, in the top 10 percent, they've had a life event. They're like, you know what? I, I don't think I need to be top 10 percent this year. I, I still want to be a top performer, but, you know, maybe top 30 is more of where I want to be. And so it, it just unlocks these great conversations. And, and, you know, the thing that it allowed me to do using that example was when they then came back and gave me their personal goals, they were wildly ambitious, right? They were, they were like top 1% goals. And I was like, oh, that was said you were going for more like top 30%. Uh, you know, this, you're going to set yourself, you're not setting yourself up to achieve that type of work-life balance if you go after these goals. So let's talk about timelines or how aggressive they are and so on and so forth. So that's been a very useful hack to just ground people in what do you want your year to look like and what role does work play in, in your year this year? But isn't that so common for high achiever leaders that they want to achieve lots for the year and they set out these overambitious goals and geez, I've been more than responsible for setting them out myself and putting myself under pressure. So that hack has, even though you had that conversation, it brought them to almost drive more in their ambition. So the end result for that then was what? The end, end result was I think we landed back at the 30%. We toggled the goals. And I think that is where, you know, you have to be a little bit more forceful in saying, by the way, they were still top 30% performers. You know, there were still fantastic goals that I would be delighted with their outcome, but I know that they will have a better and a more rounded and happier year with that greater degree of balance. And, you know, again, to the point of burnout, I mean, this is not new news, statistically proven that business results go down with burnout. And so if we can figure out how to help drive that greater sense of, harmony or balance, whatever word you want to attach to it. To me, that's just logical in driving better business outcomes. So we could talk forever, Emer. One question that I would love to see you as the Minister for Education, maybe in Ireland, and if you were to be given a role in advising how we would prepare our students and our young people, for the future of work from your position in looking at leaders and what's demanded today, how would you prepare them if you were to start from first principles? There's a big question. How would I prepare them? I mean, I think the first thing is, there's been a lot of talk around this notion of resilience. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say two things and I'm gonna completely contradict myself because we talk about this next generation in particular as having very low resilience or again, you know, you'll hear this term floated around like snowflake mentality. I actually think to a large extent, they have huge resilience because they've just gone through some of their most formative years in an environment that has been nuts. 
right? They've lost some of their biggest formative moments, like, you know, going to college for the first time, your first year in secondary school, leaving primary school. They've lost these huge formative moments and they're still functioning. So like in one way, I think they have huge resilience. It was actually shared at that conference last week that uh, one person spoke and said they've lost 10,000 hours of human face-to-face contact with people in those COVID years. I mean, doesn't that make a huge amount of you know, insight into what we've gone through? Totally. And, you know, for me and, and where maybe I'll go to contradict myself is and what I would do differently is maybe under the banner of resilience, I think for me, it's accepting failure or not winning. Right. Again, there's sort of it's a generation of medals for everyone. That's just not reality when they come into the work. Uh, and so I think their ability to take criticism and take it objectively, you know, even if you deliver it in the most scarf manner in the world, there's definitely a difference of hearing and receiving criticism. And so I think greater preparation for the reality of what a, a work situation will feel like, I think. And I mean, this has been talked about very broadly, but you know, I don't agree with practical exams. Again, to the point of this generation, they're asynchronous learners. That notion of, you know, read this textbook and then regurgitate it in an exam paper. And that's how we're going to evaluate whether or not you're good at it. I think that's a long outlived mental model on how people learn and especially on how adults learn. So we're also not setting up a path of continuity of how you learn as a child and how you'll then learn as an adult. We're sort of bifurcating this. Well, we've just seen people trying to game the system, haven't we? I mean, the point system, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of change and opportunity that's ripe, I think, to make in the education system. So lastly, a couple of quick fire questions, uh, Emer. A book or a podcast that you'd most recommend? Certainly your brain at work. I've plugged it enough today. Uh, I don't hold shares in the book, nor at sales, but it's been very impactful read for me. Um, I mean, it's a long spin home to Donegal. So I do listen to a lot of podcasts, certainly some business ones. I enjoy a lot of The Diary of a CEO. Some episodes are better than others. Of course, The Court. But actually, my favorite podcast is My Therapist Ghosted Me. I'm a big believer in taking moments of just frivolity and take some time and just have a laugh and de-stress. So yeah, my therapist goes me is a, a great one for that for me. And the best advice you've ever been given in your life? I have two. Uh, the first was lean into the thing that makes you different. Don't try to conform away from it. And so that, again, I think has stood me well in not trying to conform. Uh, and so, yeah, leaning into the thing that makes you different and trying to leverage that sort of as your superpower or something that sets you apart from others, that was that was certainly one. And then maybe more as a leadership piece of advice that has always stuck with me is what people remember is how you treated them at their lowest, not at their highest. And so again, maybe back to the opening of our point, be, be a good human to other people. Any last parting comments, Emer? Uh, I think my, my own all parting comment is always uh, an ongoing reflection of, is there anything I wish I would have done differently? And if there is, do it today. Great stuff. What a super way to end the podcast. I think, Emer, as I said during the podcast, I think you brought us into the world of being a leader in a global organization. And for that, I'm hugely thankful because you made it real, you made it specific, and you made it very human. And uh, the concept of really connecting with intent and empathy, I think, was brilliantly articulated by yourself. So thanks a million for your time today, Emer, and wishing you huge success for the future. Pleasure, John. Cheers. 
Thanks for listening to the core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.